Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, let's get right to our panel today because we have an awful lot to talk about. It's Wednesday, which means that Greg Bluestein, a political reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is uh, with us. Greg, we're glad to have you back. You were, we missed you last week. You took a little vacation, which was obviously well-deserved since you are never off your beat for very long. But welcome back. Yeah, we went to Austin, Texas, and it turned out that was also the time of the special session in Austin started the voting issues there. And I was like, I was biking through the Capitol complex area, coming from one stop to another, meeting my wife at a taqueria, and there was a giant press conference with the head of the Democratic Party there, and I took a picture, and immediately my bosses back home said, do not cover that. I said, don't worry, I'm just passing through. <laughs> well, I'm glad. That was your first trip to Austin, right? Yeah, it was a great city. We loved it. I biked, I hiked, yeah. we paddled, we did it all. Good, good. Um, Margaret Coker is with us as well. We're glad to have you back, Margaret. You're the editor of The Current, the nonprofit newspaper. Does a lot of investigative work based down in Savannah. Um, Margaret, how are you doing down there right now? You said before the show started, it is definitely the season for high humidity on the Georgia coast. <laughs> That's right. Um, a, hurricanes um, bring lots of storm fronts through coastal Georgia, but but seriously, when it's not raining, the air just stands still generally. So um, the dog walk necessitates sort of three showers in a row, one before, one after, and then one to get your work clothes on. <laughs> well, well, thank you. I hope you're sitting in nice, uh, comfortable air conditioning to do the show today. Alan Abramowitz, uh, po- professor of political science from Emory University, is with us. You're in cooler latitudes right now, uh, Alan Abramowitz. Right. We're in Crested Butte, Colorado, at uh, about 9,000 feet above sea level. So it's it's definitely cooler here, and we've been enjoying the uh, scenery and uh Fantastic hiking and amazing wildflower displays that you that you see in the mountains here. Well, I'm very grateful to you for taking a little while off from your vacation to join us for Political Rewind. You know, we always love having you on the show. Um, we got a lot of uh, voter uh, news to talk about today, voter legislation news to talk about. And I want to start with uh, President Biden, who was in Philadelphia yesterday uh, to give a what the White House billed as a major speech on voting rights and on the uh, election laws that are being passed in Georgia and other Republican-led states around the country. Before we talk about what uh, uh, the impact of Biden's comments are likely to be, let's listen to just a little bit of what he said in his speech. The 21st century Jim Crow assault is real. It's unrelenting. And we're going to challenge it vigorously. We'll be asking my Republican friends in Congress and states and cities and counties to stand up for God's sake and help prevent this concerted effort to undermine our election and the sacred right to vote. Have you no shame? We must act and we will act, for our cause is just, our vision is clear, and our hearts are full. For we the people, for our democracy, for America itself, we must act. 
Greg Bluestein, uh, the president in his speech yesterday, uh, didn't mention uh, Donald Trump by name, but he did talk about uh, the uh, bullies who have been promoting the lie, what he says are, is the big lie about fraudulent elections that have led to these uh, uh, efforts to pass these kinds of laws, right? Yeah, he cast it as a moral battle, as we, as we heard, um, said it was a significant test of our democracy's future. Um, but the real thing that stuck, stuck out to me and, and pretty much every other reporter who, who followed the speech was that he did not mention any sort of effort to roll back the filibuster, um, to eliminate the filibuster or to scale it back to, to allow uh, voting legislation to go through. And that, to me, and to and to just you know to, to other observers, signaled that essentially um, that he's not going to take any significant effort to to push through the, these federal election uh, measures that are still pending in Congress. That, that instead, this is a shift to the midterm elections. This will be an issue in 2022 as Democrats try to expand their majority uh, or their very narrow majority in the U.S. Senate because there won't be. Any sort of significant action in Washington on voting bills, unless that filibuster is rolled back. Yeah, um, Margaret, um, I want to talk a little bit more about why the president is hesitant about uh, supporting a rollback of the filibuster in a moment. But before we do, um, the fact of the matter is, it was a big speech. It was a passionate speech, obviously. Uh, but there's almost nothing right now that President Biden, as Greg points out, or, for that matter, Democrats in state like, states like Georgia can do, other than go to the courts, to roll back these laws. They are in place, and they're, and particularly after the Supreme Court's Arizona decision, it's quite likely they'll remain in place despite anger among Democrats, Margaret. Yeah, that's true. I, you know, I think every, every strong political movement needs to start with emotion. But after emotion, you actually have to have a strategic plan to implement. And right now, I know that there's a lot of people here in coastal Georgia in our blue pockets like Savannah and Brunswick who are, that are majority minority cities. You know, they, um, they, they, they want to see as, as many institutional um, relief that they can to what they see is concerted voter suppression by Republicans across America right now. Um, here in Savannah, we have uh, the states, I believe it's the state's um, longest continually published Black-owned newspaper. It's called the Savannah Tribune. And the publisher uh, there, they, they ran a... Um, an op-ed a couple of weeks ago, you know, even even in District 1, our representative, Buddy Carter, he voted to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. But he's standing against all the voting rights legislation that's going on um, through the through the halls of Congress right now. And that's just not good enough. It's not good enough for a large group of his constituents and I think a large group of constituents around Georgia. Uh, Alan, uh, we know that the Senate has already blocked the so-called For the People Act, uh, the House's uh, broad uh, reform measure, federal reform measure of elections. Uh, and we have every reason to think that when the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which is a much more scaled back effort to do something to uh, overcome some of the laws that are being passed in states, is likely to face the filibuster as well, right? Correct. Uh, I guess the one encouraging thing for Democrats along those lines is that um, Joe Manchin has proposed his own version of a, a voting reform legislation, which actually incorporates 
Um, not er not everything that's in the For the People Act by any means, but it does incorporate some pretty significant parts of it. And it's something that I think Democrats could get behind. Um, however, the, the big question is whether Manchin, along with Kristen Sinema, would be willing uh, to support uh, changing the filibuster rule uh, or at least you know, modifying it, uh, doing something that would um, allow uh, any sort of uh, election, uh, voting reform legislation to actually uh, come to a vote in the Senate. So that, that remains to be seen. Um, and, you know, and the other thing I think that Democrats are uh, planning to do in response to all these uh, Republican bills around the country is simply to uh, increase their voter registration and turnout efforts. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the response will be increased voter mobilization uh, in an effort to ensure that you have a very strong turnout in the 2022 midterm elections to try to hold on to the House and, and, and set it and possibly even increase this Democratic majority in the Senate. Yeah, it's, it's essentially what Greg Bluestein uh, was saying. You're setting the table now for uh, an effort to mobilize voters uh, to respond right. to these Republican election laws. Alan, while the ball's in your court, um, it's interesting to me. I mean, I understand why there are Democrats out there, liberal Democrats particularly, who are really frustrated with President Biden that he will not support an end to the Senate filibuster. Um, on the other hand, it's interesting, too, because uh, Biden is a creature of the Senate. He is well aware of the value that over the years the filibuster has had for protecting the minority party. And, and I think it's worth talking a little about this. Democrats uh, eliminated the filibuster for uh, uh, voting for federal judges, and look what it got them. It got them a, a, the inability to block Trump appointees for the Supreme Court. And and so there's it isn't such a simple matter, is it, Alan, to say, let's get rid of the filibuster so we can pass more Democratic bills while we're in the majority. Mm -hmm. Right. So they, in fact, the filibuster rule itself has been modified numerous times. Um, and most recently, uh, under when the Democrats controlled the Senate, they eliminated the filibuster for executive branch nominations and lower court nominations. It was the Republicans, actually, who eliminated the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations. Um, there's a recognition among Democrats that if you get rid of the filibuster uh, for legislation, that when, uh, whenever Republicans get back in the majority in, in, in the Senate, they're likely to have a very narrow majority. And without the filibuster, Democrats would lack the ability to block legislation. Progressive Democrats, I think, are more than willing to take that risk, however. Um, the sense is that what the filibuster primarily has been used for over time, if you look at this history, has been uh, by conservatives uh, and, and uh, uh, frankly, uh, white supremacists to block progressive legislation, to block civil rights legislation. Uh, yes, progressives have used it occasionally, but that, that has definitely been the primary use of the filibuster. By the way, thank thank you for the correction on, on it was the Republicans who did the Supreme Court. It was Democrats who looked right. at lower court and executive branch. Thank you for that, Margaret. Yeah, I, I understand um, 
Alan's analysis very well. What I, I'm sort of disturbed about is that there is a, you know, the political atmosphere here um, in, in America makes everything that happens in Washington a winner-take-all, zero-sum game. I mean, the fact is that um, if, if a national party can make a broad agreement and a broad um, argument that that there is national legislation that is in the public interest, um, voting rights being one of the constitutionally uh, protected rights of Americans, that you should be able to have a, a limited exception to the filibuster rule. Um, I do believe that the Democrats used that exception to pass the massive coronavirus recovery bill earlier this year. So it's, it's a, it can be billed as a win-win opportunity if um, democratic messaging kind of gets behind all that. I think that for the um, the Democrats in the Senate who are on the fence about voting rights, I mean, as you said, Joe Manchin has his alternative legislation there teed up, um, also ready to support. I believe Stacey Abrams has said she would support um, that that alternative. There are ways forward here. Um, we just need to get beyond the um, the political baseball um, back and forth and and actually just get something done for the good of all Americans. Yeah, uh, President Biden uh, shifted, shifted. it seemed to me, the responsibility to, to lawmakers. Um, even after the speech, when he was asked uh, to, whether he'd take a stance on the filibuster, he said to reporters, I'm not, ta I'm not filibustering now. Uh, he said to reporters who shouted questions after the speech. And, and some activists thought that was strange to hear. Um, but, you know, right now, with, with, with the filibuster in place, uh, and with the process called reconciliation, where it, where basically it's a budget tool that Democrats use to 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 pass the uh, coronavirus relief package without any sort of Republican um, support. That was the only way they could get that through. That's they're they're looking to use that reconciliation process again for the infrastructure package, but they cannot use that for any sort of voting rights measure unless the filibuster rule is relaxed. And again. Um, without the president's support, without a concerted effort by Democrats, uh, without Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, two Democratic senators, um, they're not on board for relaxing the filibuster. This is a 2022 battle. And even then, it requires, you know, 60 Democratic senators, um, uh, unless there is a substantial uh, uh, reconsideration of what filibuster means in the modern day politics. Alan? Oh, I, I was just going to bring up the fact that the that the earlier the big budget bill and and uh, that was already passed and and the one that now is under consideration that were passed using this reconciliation process that can't be used for voting rights. It's just not allowed yeah. under the under under the rules. What I think yeah. the Democrats right. are, are hoping uh, for is if that if if Manchin and Cinema won't go along with uh, relaxing the filibuster rule for voting rights legislation. Um, that they'll be able to pick up one or two seats in the in the 2022 elections, uh, and if you have uh, 50, 52 Democrats in the Senate instead of instead of 50, um, then then I think there's a, there's a much better chance that you'll be able to change the filibuster rule, uh, because I think other than Manchin and Cinema, I believe every other Democrat in the Senate is on board with at least modifying the filibuster rule at this point. So you won't need 60 votes in that case. So I, I think, frankly, the filibuster rule is uh, likely to be changed at some point in the future, because, frankly, I think the Republicans will change it if, if they need to. Um, so that's going to happen. I think it's just a matter of, of when it happens and, and under what circumstances. 
Um, meanwhile, Greg, as you, you, you happened to come across a, a news conference in Austin uh, <laughs> around this, the new special session that uh, Governor Greg Abbott uh, called for after Democrats during the regular session, when Abbott and his legislative leaders tried to bring forward of their election reform measures, uh, which Democrats considered egregious, and when you look at them, they are pretty, pretty uh, strong in terms of how they might uh, suppress uh, minority votes. Um, uh, the Democrats walked out denying Republicans a quorum. The legislative session ended. Governor Abbott said, I'll call a special session to get these through. He did indeed do that. And you came across that uh, group of Democrats who were going into a special session uh, for, for to work on the election bills. They still oppose it. And now they, too, have walked out. Uh, a group of them got on private jets <laughs> And very surreptitiously flew off to Washington, D.C. And once again, Greg, Governor Abbott doesn't have a, a quorum to pass his uh, bill. Talk a bit about this. Yeah, it's a very dramatic standoff, and no one's quite sure how it'll end because Governor Greg Abbott has said he'll call special session after special session after special session until an election bill is passed. So it's not like Republicans are relenting. There'll just be a series of, of, of standoffs to come if there's not some sort of resolution there. Uh, you know, and, and, and a few Democratic lawmakers who didn't go to Washington were rounded up and ordered onto the statehouse floor. So those of them who didn't flee the state are being kind of forced to, to, to stand and vote uh, and take a position. But this measure echoes a lot of the Georgia measure, uh, a lot of what the Georgia measure has. It has new voter identification requirements for voting by mail. Uh, it limits the types of assistance that can be provided to voters, uh, but it also does something that in Georgia wasn't a, an issue. It bans 24-hour voting, um, and, uh, and and then it, it has a different sort of limitations on elections officials uh, to pro uh, block them from proactively sending absentee ballot applications to voters who hadn't requested them. So uh, a lot of ways it mirrors the Georgia law. In some ways, it goes beyond the Georgia law. In some ways, it doesn't go as far as the Georgia law because the Georgia law also gave uh, local politicians, lo the legislature, uh, more power to uh, intervene and, and, and oversee uh, local elections. Um, but, you know, all goes into that same argument that Democrats are making, which is that there needs to be a federal law to supersede these state restrictions. Um, Margaret, uh, Sam Burmis Dawes found a soundbite of uh, a Democrat in the Texas legislature, somebody who's been a member of the House for a long time. Her name is Sinfronia Thompson. Uh, she was asked why she decided to flee from Austin, Texas during this special session. Here's what she said. I left because I am tired of sitting as a hostage in a House of Rep Texas House of Representatives while Republicans strip away the rights of my constituents to vote. We have fought too long and too hard in this country to get away from having to count beans in a bag, having to count bubbles in a soap bar. And we have achieved the full right to vote in this country. That could just as easily have been a Georgia Democratic legislator <laughs> making those comments, Margaret.
Yeah, it's it's um it's one of the disappointments I think about um about being an American right now is um I was not alive during the civil rights movement. I was alive after the voting um the Voting Rights Act passed Congress, but you you know, I think uh, all of us no matter who we vote for would like to believe in human progression and um and America becoming a more perfect union throughout our lifetime and into the future. And the fact that there is a significant number of elected officials in America who believe that we are backtracking, that we have to go back and fight the same battles that their um, elders did in the 50s and 60s, is sort of depressing, isn't it? Um, Alan, before we get off the subject, let's be clear about something in, in terms of all this. Uh, Governor Kemp and other Georgia Republican leaders bristle at this notion that what they've done is pass a law that is Jim Crow 2.0. They're angry that uh, they're being accused of uh, trying to suppress the vote in the same way that uh, this state did during the Jim Crow uh, period. So, so we should at least make the point that um, they are, they continue to say their law makes it uh, easier to vote, harder to cheat. The problem is there was never any reason to think there was a lot of cheating going on in the first place, which sort of mm -hmm. is at the base of all this, right? That's exactly right. So um, you have to ask yourself the question, why now? Um, why are we seeing these sorts of changes made to the law? One can debate the significance of the specific changes and how much impact they'll actually have on turnout. But I think what is uh, upsetting to a lot of people is that the foundation of this in states like Georgia and Texas is the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump and that there was massive voter fraud. Uh, and so what you see here is Republicans in Georgia, for example, uh, targeting uh, particular rules that uh, were used in the 2020 election uh, disproportionately by minority uh, communities to vote. Um, and, and, and so, um, you know, they changed the rules regarding uh, drop boxes, for example, um, in a way that would actually make it somewhat easier for voters in rural parts of the state to vote, but more difficult for voters in the big urban uh, counties uh, that vote heavily Democratic to vote. So you have to ask yourself why. Why are they, are they doing that? Uh, the interesting thing in Texas is that Texas Repub you know, the Republicans won in Texas, uh, and they're still moving in this direction. And it's all about satisfying uh, the demands of the former president and, and his and his political allies and the Republican base, uh, and, and and looking ahead and, and seeing the demographic changes that are, t that are taking place uh, in Texas and 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 worrying about the impact that those are going to have in future elections. Um, Alan, I, I, I do think it's worth pointing out that you have said on this show any number of times that you believe that the new voting laws in, in Georgia could just as easily backfire on Republicans and, and bring out uh, many, many Democrats who are angry about what they think has been right. a, an attempt to suppress their votes. That, that's generally what happens is that when this type of voter suppression uh, legislation is enacted or these sorts of rules are, are put into place, uh, it, it actually can stimulate, uh, uh, first of all, a voter turnout uh, and mobilization efforts on the, on the part of Democrats, which I think is what you're going to see, but also just can make people angry 
uh, when they perceive that the Republicans are trying to prevent them from voting, uh, people don't respond to that by just saying, okay, well, then I won't vote. You know, if it's going to be harder for me to vote, I'm not going to bother voting. That's not generally what happens. Um, so I'm anticipating that in 2022, specifically in Georgia, we're going to see a very, very strong turnout in, in the midterm elections. We've got some big races, uh, and I think we're going to see a big voter mobilization effort uh, on both sides, but particularly by Democrats in response to the new voting law. Uh, Greg, before we take our break, and, and I don't uh, and I, I don't want to try to go into too much depth on this because I frankly will be interested in seeing more on this story. But there, Mark Meese, your colleague who follows elections at, at uh, the paper and election uh, laws and challenges to those laws, has an interesting front page story today in which he points out that Fulton County has now, in fact, been, uh, uh, they've found that there were a number of votes, apparently a very small number, but a number of votes that were double counted in the 2020 election. And, and this was discovered as the, uh, as the parties who are suing to get a recount of absentee ballots in Fulton County and asking a judge to let it go forward learned that there were these double votes counted. It was a small number. It apparently didn't affect the outcome. They don't believe that any of those votes had anything to do with the presidential race, uh, it, with changing the outcome mm-hmm. of the presidential race. But this is going to give more fodder for the pro-Trump forces calling the election a fraud. And we, and we saw that uh, last night, uh, shortly after the story posted. But, uh, yeah, let's be clear. Uh, it shows we're talking about nearly 200 ballots. Um, that elections officials initially scanned uh, appears to be two times before a recount. There's no indi- indication that any of these uh, involved uh, votes for president that were counted more than once in the official results. And of course, uh, there's no uh, possibility whatsoever that this can affect uh, the presidential election. But as you mentioned, it does give those pro-Trump forces who who uh, who have produced this discovery as part of the lawsuit. Um, looking into Fulton, seeking a, an investigation into Fulton County's absentee ballots, it does give them more grist to say that, hey, this is, you know, this could be the tip of the, the iceberg. Um, and they've been searching for signs of fraud um, since since President Trump's defeat in Georgia. And this is, you know, just an indication to them of what could be to come if they were allowed to get to to launch a broader search, there's no indication still um, of any sort of widespread fraud or irregularities, and of course, no chance that the election could be overturned. Um, let's get to a break in a minute. Except, Margaret, first, uh, this could mean that the judge in this case, who's been trying to be very cautious about moving forward, this may give him some impetus for agreeing to recount the absentee val- ballots. It'd be like I think the fourth time we'd have a look at Fulton County ballots, yeah? Yeah, and I, I think that um, if there's a fourth recount, I'm not sure that that will satisfy anybody who still believes in fraud and still believes mm-hmm. that the election results are invalid. So if, um, if a judge rules that way, of course it'll happen. I would ask as a taxpayer in Georgia whether that's a really good use of my taxpayer money at this point. Okay, thank you all for uh, the conversation uh, about the Biden speech and all the implications that uh, come out of it. Uh, We're going to have a lot more to talk about in just a minute, but let's take our first break on Political Rewind.
Alan Abramowitz, Margaret Coker, Greg Bluestein join me for today's Political Rewind. Before we go back to the conversation with them, I just want to give a quick shout out to our very good friend, Kenny Leon, the uh, New York, the Broadway director, the filmmaker, uh, Kenny, uh, who was on the show a number of weeks ago talking about the made-for-TV picture. He did a biopic of the great Mahalia Jackson. Uh, he was nominated, his, his film was nominated for as outstanding television movie uh, for an Emmy. Daniel Brooks playing Mahalia Jackson. We'll see how it all turns out, but couldn't be happier for a really wonderful person, Kenny Leon, and the great team that made that movie. Okay, enough of that. Um, Greg Bluestein, it's too delicious to resist. There are so many more things I'd like to talk about, but I really think it's impossible to not talk about this mystery challenger who is beginning to come into sharper focus as a possible opponent of Brian Kemp, a Trump-backed opponent of Brian Kemp in the Republican primary for governor. Give us a little insight based on what you've, you've reported. Yeah, it's no, it's no secret that the anti-Kemp Republicans are not all that enthused, or at least a lot of them are not all that enthused with Vernon Jones, who's already announced his, his candidacy. He's a Vernon Jones is a former Democrat who just switched parties a few months ago and has a long record of voting for for Democratic causes. So, so there's a, there's a group of Republicans searching for a Vernon Jones alternative who could challenge Kemp, maybe with Donald Trump's endorsement. We reported yesterday that Ames Barnett, a former uh, he's a businessman, a, a construction executive who lives out in East Georgia, was the mayor of Washington, Georgia, a tiny town of about four thousand people. Um, we reported yesterday he went to CPAC. Um, and met with Trump. And then shortly after we reported that, he posted a picture, Ames Barnett did, of uh, of, of him and, and, and former President Trump um, on his Twitter feed. Well, uh, we're hearing that he's taking more steps towards contacting potential uh, supporters and vendors and all that, all the things you got to do before you announce a challenge. I have no idea if he will announce a challenge of Kemp, but it prompted a little bit digging. It wasn't too hard to, to, to use the old Google. Uh, and two things <laughs> stood out to me, at least. One was a 2011 story in the Washington Post um, that detailed how he built a replica of Jefferson Davis's mansion, the Confederate uh, president's mansion in uh, in Washington that sits like right near the town square. Uh, he calls it the Beauvoir. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and <laughs> okay, planted, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe. Uh, you, you, I'll let you do the French. But uh, they planted 13 magnolia trees and turned a, a lot across the street into a private parking lot. And the other thing that, of course, would probably infuriate some Democrats. But the other thing that could could be grist for the for the Kemp machine is that uh, he also was the deciding vote in 2014 uh, to do what the Augusta Chronicle said at the time was defund the police department. Um, they voted to uh, eliminate funding and disband the Washington, Georgia Police Department and let local counties uh, officials uh, come in. So both those things could be coming to attack ads near you soon if, if Ames Barnett does indeed announce a challenge. So, Alan and then Margaret, I, how seriously do you believe? Uh, Vernon Jones, we, we have dismissed him repeatedly on this show, and that may be unfair of us, um, but I think it's based on the fact that he has had a a past, and he switches from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party a couple of years ago, so he doesn't have any depth there. He's also got some personal issues in terms of uh, his behavior toward women, which will come. So we've we've suggested that he he's he's an unlikely 
uh, candidate to beat Kemp. But when an Ames Barnett comes along with money to spend and um, with backing from the Corey Lewandowski, Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump folks, it, how seriously, Alan, should we take this threat, uh, potential threat to Brian Kemp? Uh, I, I wouldn't take it all that seriously. Um, I, I think that Kemp right now is pretty well positioned uh, for the uh, upcoming Republican primary. Uh, he, he's certainly going to face a very tough battle for reelection in the general election. But um, I think if you look at the things he's been saying and doing uh, ever since uh, the 2020 election, that almost every action he's taken, almost everything he's said and done has been geared toward uh, trying to uh, restore his support, build up his support among the re Republican base, uh, those who will be voting in, in that primary election. And uh, uh, my impression is that he's been pretty successful in doing that. And that's the reason why we haven't seen a, a stronger challenger emerge, as opposed to the situation that we have in the Secretary of State's race, for example, uh, where we, you know, we do have a strong Trump back challenger emerging to Brian to, to uh, Brad Raffensperger. So, um, you know, I'm I'm skeptical. Uh, certainly, any any challenger to Kemp is going to draw 25, 30 percent of the Republican primary vote. There's a minority of Republican voters who I think are prepared to vote. They're so angry at Kemp uh, over his refusal to um, do more to try to uh, reverse the election results, you know, that there's a minority of Republican voters who will support anyone who challenges him. But I, I don't see uh, Kemp in serious trouble in a Republican primary. Uh, I see him facing a very uh, uh, a difficult reelection battle against Stacey Abrams in November of 2022. Margaret? Margaret, yeah, have we got like, you there? Can you hear me? I feel like we're in this um, great um, political scientific experiment right now where conventional wisdom has been thrown um, out the, the door window and we're speeding along the highway um, that probably needs to get repaired with an infrastructure bill of some sort. But, you know, everyone wrote off Donald Trump, right, as a, as a person who um, also flip-flopped between parties, who had no political experience, who had a checkered past. And that does not seem like um, a disqualification um, for, for running for office, let alone winning an office. There's a lot that can happen over the next nine or 10 months. There's a lot of different variables in play here about um, who else comes in on, uh, for different Republican races, what's going to happen with the, um, the Senate race, who's going to come up against Warnock, you know, the dynamics of a ticket, the dynamics of a campaign trail, all of these things matter. And I think it's too early really to write anybody off at this point. Um, you know, the, our, our uh, last year, we, we saw that tacking to this, the absolute right on the Republican side did not end up winning national races in Georgia, but that did not um, end up losing candidates' races on the statewide level. So I, I, I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not betting on anybody right now. Okay. Hey, as long as the um, you, you, you've got the ball now, um, you know, and as long as we're talking about candidates in the 2022 election cycle, um, you mentioned before the show that you were listening the other day, and we uh, talked a little bit about Buddy Carter 
kind of playing a waiting game to get into the U.S. Senate race, uh, hoping to win the nomination to face off against Raphael Warnock, but waiting to some extent for um, Herschel Walker to make up his mind. And he did run a TV spot in the All-Star game last night, Buddy Carter did, uh, attacking Democrats for being too woke and uh, being the reason that MLB pulled the game out of here, took it to Denver. Uh, what's your take right now on Buddy Carter kind of sitting back to some extent, but also really positioning himself if Herschel Walker doesn't uh, end up uh, with the uh, uh, getting into the race? Yeah, I think um, Representative Carter is is definitely in a prime spot um, to come in as a ace reliever. And in terms of um, what he's thinking, I think win the race. You know, he's um, since since winning re-election quite handily, I, I should add, um, back in November. You know, since the start of this year, he has been in campaign mode. And he um, has consolidated a very um, sophisticated team around him to run his um, shadow Senate campaign, shadow for now, because he's not officially um, uh, announced his candidacy. But he's he um, it's, it's a it's an interesting it's a, I think it's part of this larger scientific political experience right now. I mean, his some of the people who have known him all of his life here in, in the Savannah area, people who have donated to his campaigns while he was mayor of Pooler, while um, while he was running for for his House seat. You know, a lot of people who are no longer Trump supporters in the Republican Party in Chatham County cannot believe that that Buddy is is trying this thing. Um, some people believe that he has been, uh, you know, sort of wooed by the siren song of um, D.C. based political consultants, um, RNC operatives, and, um, and folks who are running national races in, from Washington who believe that he is well-positioned for a chance to win. Um, that's turned some people off here in, in District 1. I'm sure that there is a great number of Trump supporters, though, who, um, who, who like what they see in, in the Buddy Carter that, um, that is out on the campaign trail, at least informally, um, over the last five months. He, um, his campaign is fairly, fairly straightforward. He is moving, um, he's moving into circles where Trump supporters um, have, have shown that they like to be and on policies that, that they avidly support. Um, multiple times a week, he's appearing on OAN and Newsmax. Um, he is in the, the, um, the echo chamber that Trumpists like. Um, he's missed uh, missed votes in in Washington because he's on tour um, at the border with with Trump um, last month. So he's definitely um, he's definitely you know paving a road for himself. Um, whether or not that's going to win a um, win over the state as a whole, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, his his greatest challenge, of course, is Herschel Walker, and it looks like Herschel Walker is going to run. And, and and Congressman Carter says he will not run. He had this great quote: "I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night." So he, he knows that if, if he goes up against Herschel Walker, um, especially when you're talking about a metro Atlanta electorate that has not really heard of Buddy Carter. I mean, there's not many people um, up in my neck of the woods who could tell you off the top of their head who Buddy Carter is, which means he has a, a huge challenge ahead of him to build his name ID um, out in the vote-rich parts of the state, like like here and, and in North Georgia, where the uh, the majority, you know, where pre- Republican primaries are won or lost. Hall County, the ex-urban counties in Forsyth and Cherokee, those, those Douglas County, Paul, the County, those very important Republican counties. Um, but what I think he did, honestly, you know, yesterday with that ad, it was, I think he made that ad weeks ago. It was already in the can. 
because he thought, like a lot of us thought, that Herschel Walker, that whole debate would have been decided by now. So he already had that ad made, um, and he just decided to use it because we all we all knew that the MLB All Star Game was was moving had been moved back in April. So um, that's what I think happened. And look, he has to also hedge his bets because what if her, you know we all think a lot of a lot of people in the political world think that Herschel Walker is now going to announce, but what if he decides not to, and then. Uh, and then, you know, folks like Buddy Carter are even further behind in the race against Gary Black and whoever else might get in. Um, so that was, a, you know, an important step for him to take to at least name, raise his name ID a little bit and get some free media out of it. Um, Alan, uh, I, I, I made the point on the show yesterday that um, in, in, a, in a strange way, this waiting game on Herschel Walker uh, is accruing to Raphael Warnock's benefit in the same way that back in the uh, uh, 2020 uh, Senate race, that uh, jungle uh, race, the battle between two Republicans uh, had kind of freed up uh, Raphael Warnock to end up in the runoff and hurt both of the Republicans, certainly uh, hurt Kelly Leffler uh, as she moved into the runoff with uh, Warnock. And a similar dynamic is it play right now, although it'll end as soon as uh, Herschel Walker jumps in, I guess? Right. So uh, it's to Warnock's advantage to uh, have the Republicans divided among several potential candidates to not have a, uh, you know, a, a candidate on the other side uh, uh, so that Republicans can't uh, yet focus their attention entirely on on Warnock and his record. Uh, in the end, I don't think that's going to make a whole lot of difference um, because I do think that regardless of who ends up as Republican nominee, we're clearly going to have a Republican candidate who is closely aligned with pre- with former President Trump. Um, whether it's you know Herschel Walker or Buddy Carter. Uh, or Garrett or somebody else. Um, and we're going to end up, I think, with a similar type of race to the one that we had in 2020, where we saw and we had two runoff elections. And the results of the two runoff elections, even though we had two different Republican candidates there, one an elected incumbent, one a non-elected incumbent, the results were virtually identical. The margin was slightly, slightly greater. Um, for Warnock than it was for Ossoff. But fundamentally, what we saw there is that the outcome reflected the basic divisions within the state of Georgia. And we're going to see the very same thing without any doubt in my mind in November of 2022. Um, The results for governor, the results for the Senate race, and all the statewide offices are going to be very, very closely aligned uh, in all likelihood uh, the winners uh, came from the same party uh, because that's what the way these elections work these days. The voters vote a straight party ticket uh, and Republican voters are going to vote for the Republican nominee for Senate, no matter who that nominee is. There's not going to be much different, tiny, tiny difference, depending on who the candidate is. Uh, qu- quick comment, Margaret. I got to get to a break. Yeah, um, tomorrow, um, July 15th, is the next uh, deadline that the Federal Election Commission has for um, campaign um, disclosures. 
So we're going to see how much money um, the PACs uh, who, who like Buddy Carter have accrued to him and if there's anyone in the shadows that's, uh, that's going to start funding um, these other Republican primary candidates. Ooh, thank you for pointing that out. We'll watch that very carefully. Let's get to our final break of the show. Back with more. Alan Abramowitz, while we have you, one of the top numbers crunchers, data guys in terms of election uh, data on the show, I've got to ask you about the Brookings report, which came out late last month. They looked at preliminary census uh, data, which we're still waiting for, of course, to be finalized, uh, we think, by end of September. Here's the lead of what Brookings says. As we await the final 2020 census statistics for America's race and ethnic populations, newly released Census Bureau estimates compiled independently of the census suggest something unprecedented. The 2010s could be the first decade when the nation's white population registered an absolute loss. These new estimates show annual population changes by race and ethnicity between July 2010, July 2020. They indicate that for each year since 2016, the nation's white population dropped in size. What is the, that's a, that's a remarkable figure, uh, Alan. It is, and it's happening sooner than expected. Um, so we've seen projections for some time now that over the next several decades, that the, uh, the white share of the population of the country uh, and the white share of the population of uh, many of the uh, states, including Georgia, um, was going to be declining uh, or would continue declining and that the, the non-white share would be increasing. Uh, and by sometime in the 2040s, um, we would have a majority minority population for the entire country. That will happen even sooner in Georgia. Um, so it's happening. Um, we don't know exactly what the numbers are going to look like when they when they come out from the census. And obviously, the pandemic has had a big impact on or some impact, at least on this as well, with declining birth rates. But uh, there's no question that what the long term trends are. And I think this is very worrisome to Republican Party leaders and strategists, because we have a, a, a party here that is, you know, increasingly dependent on the votes of a declining share of the population that is white um, uh, Americans uh, and non-college white Americans in particular. So uh, the share of the electorate made up of non-college white has been declining for some time. We know it's going to continue declining. That's where uh, the Republican Party has been has been uh, running up big majorities. Uh, now, it still remains a very large share of the population, so it's not going away anytime soon. Um, but this has got to be worrisome to you if you are a Republican. You've got to figure out how are you going to squeeze more votes out of this declining share of the population? Or, alternatively, how can you make uh, some inroads uh, among the group, groups that are actually increasing in size, which are n namely uh, non-whites? Uh, and, and to a lesser extent, college-educated white voters, groups that they have not been doing well uh, with in recent elections. Um, all of which, Margaret, uh, lends itself to the argument that uh, voting rights groups are making, which is that because of this trend, 
Uh, Republicans are more interested in subtracting voters, not adding uh, voters to the rolls, because they can't win unless they do that. That's right. And, uh, you know, I think if if um, we go back um, not so long in, in America's past and, you know, looking at our present, you know, as a republic, um, voting rights um, and America, you know, it is, is the ultimate team sport, uh, right, voting. Um, it, it is a sport that you can participate in no matter how rich you are, how, how poor you are, what color of, of skin you have. You just have to be 18 in order to get on someone's team and, and make a difference. And so as, as a, a nation um, that is divided on almost all else, we can all still agree about sports. And I'm using that metaphor, hopefully not as a tired cliche, because when, when we can bring up examples of voter suppression in our past, we, we can bring up um, racism in our past, it is all going to be part of the argument that community organizers and community groups are going to have, um, like Alan mentioned, you know, when, when people feel like their, their votes are being suppressed, it's going to energize them to get out and vote more. Greg? And this is something that Republicans have been talking about in Georgia for years is, is as the state gets more diverse, how, to, how the GOP uh, expands its electorate. And while they've talked about it a lot, um, and there were some inroads under the Governor Deal administration because um, you, know, you saw his numbers and Johnny Isaacs' numbers among African-Americans reached double digits, around 10%, um, which, is, which is an improvement. Uh, but still, nothing to kind of you know, nothing to crow about. Um, it is you know that 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 trend has has reversed in in more recent years, especially under the Trump administration. Um, and you know, you saw the Republican strategy last year in the election and in eighteen for Governor Kemp's election, which is basically doubling down on rural Georgia, on rural white Georgia, doubling down on trying to get um, older white conservatives to vote at the at the expense of trying to expand the electorate. Um, before we run out of time, Ellen, one more quick point. The Brookings report shows that the white population loss over those 10 years is heavily skewed among younger and prime labor force ages, those from under 25 and those from 25 to 59, because the baby boomers are aging so rapidly and dying off. So that creates even more problems uh, for the Republican Party. It's it's the, with a heavy heavy influx of young, non-white Americans right. uh, in the mix. Well, that just means that this, tra this transformation of the population and therefore uh, of the electorate is going to happen more quickly. Uh, because uh, I, when, if you look at the uh, racial composition of the, uh, by, broken down by generation, there's just a huge difference between the racial makeup of the youngest age groups and the racial makeup of the oldest age groups. And, you know, all you have to do is look at that, and that tells you the direction things are going in in the future and where we're going to be in 10 or 20 years. Alan Abramowitz, I wish I could talk about you. We're going to do more on, on demographics with you because it's important as we look at the 2022 cycle. But thank you for being here from Crested Butte today, taking time out from your vacation. <laughs> Greg Lucine, welcome back from vacation. Thank you. Margaret Coker, what a pleasure to have you back on Political Rewind. Uh, we're out of time for today's show, but I'll be back again tomorrow with another edition. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy. Uh, you know, maybe you should be wearing a mask under the right circumstances. And, uh, oh, come on, go get a vaccination. Take care, everybody. See you tomorrow.